I'm Chelsea. And I'm Deidre. And we're giving you a million murders. It is, it is. How y'all doing? We're, I'm doing good. You said we're good. I was like, we're good. We're all good, us listeners. Well, I'm back with a part two. Yes. Is it the next year? Did we figure that out? Yes. Yeah. Happy New Year, Happy y'all. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. So where we left off last was they found a DNA match. And it was the name of a Joseph Scott Hatley. Mm-hmm. So that's where we were last. That's where we left off. So. Right. Like Michael. They thought it was Michael forever. Thought it was Michael. And then he was able to clear his name. Yes. The and, DNA match. Yeah. And then. And this is a guy who lived in town. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Part two. Mm-hmm. 15 years later, on December 9th, 2021, Hatley was found dead in an RV where he had been living alone uh, outside Abilene. What? He was 56 and had been diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Not long after, Miller, who had just retired, took an odd call from a Stephenville police officer. A man who had purchased the RV had found a cache of papers inside. The man, the officer said, was freaking out and wanted to be rid of it all. Mm. Once he retrieved the cache, Miller saw that saw that much was Miller saw that much of it was a kind Miller saw that much of it was kind of an autobiography. Nearly 200 pages, handwritten in neat block letters. Ew. <laughs> it appeared to be Hatley's earnest attempt to solve the mystery of his life, to understand why it had veered so widely off course. Mm-hmm. He paints a portrait of a small-town Texas boy who built a secret life inside the bosom of family and church and tells how everything came apart once he ventured beyond Stephenville. It also answered a vexing question, how had Hatley gotten away with not just one vicious crime, but two? Right. Scott Hatley, Scotty, to close friends and family, was born in 1965. He makes clear that from an early age he was consumed by a burning anger he couldn't fully explain. He claims that his mother was abusive and regularly slapped him. That's it. <laughs> accusations that she would deny. In Hatley's telling, the abuse enraged him, though he kept it inside. Bullying may have played a role. Like his beloved sister, Regina, who was three years older, Hatley was a heavy child, and both kids were teased about their weight. Oh. The first serious anger, he recalls, came upon hearing his sister crying in bed one night after a teasing episode. <laughs> By the age of eight, he had started to fantasize about getting revenge against those who had hurt him or his sister. Uh-oh. Now here's where it gets. Yeah. An inquisitive child, prone to daydreaming, Hatley found much of life perplexing. Questions about sex, which his parents refused to discuss, confounded him, even as news stories, even as news stories of sexual violence stirred in him feelings he couldn't explain. Oh, what? Yeah, see, this is weird because you're getting to hear, like, the inner workings of mm-hmm. a killer and, like, a 
Mm-hmm. Just like, I like it. Yeah, this is weird. The family was religious, sometimes debating scripture at the dinner table. The, the, <laughs> the, the dinner table. At the dinner table. To Hatley, God and Satan were tangible beings who could influence lives. He recalls sitting in the front pew in church, straining for understanding that never came. At around 12, when his favorite choir leader was fired, he quit the church in disgust. What may have seemed like a healthy and happy upbringing from the outside, he writes, was in fact plagued by confusion and violent musings. At one point, his anger crystallized into what he says became his favorite daydream, an intricate plot years before mass shootings become a national scourge to barge into his school and kill everyone in sight. Oh, so he wanted to kill everyone? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Where he said his anger crystallized into what his became his favorite daydream. Yeah. Oof. Little of this was apparent to those around him. Growing up in the 70s as a blonde preteen with a bow haircut. Ah, bow oh, haircuts. Yeah. I remember. Because <laughs> I had one. Oh. Yes, anyway. yes. Hatley played baseball, basketball, and football. Worshipped the Dallas Cowboys, Roger Staubach, and was a Cub Scout. His sister's friend, Gloria Martin, recalls him as a beaver cleaver type. Just a nerdy little guy, kind of chubby, and didn't look like he was particularly popular in school. Hmm. In fact, as a teenager, Hatley developed multiple sides to his identity. At Stevensville High, he was quiet, uninvolved with girls or sports, arranging his, his classes so he could leave early to help his father at work. Among family, he could be outspoken, even pushy, says Cindy Hayes, Hmm. who was his first cousin. Their mothers were sisters, and the two families spent Thanksgiving and Christmas together. Mm. Cindy always felt Scott was a bully in the family. Roy Hayes, who knew Hatley since kindergarten, told me he often talked down to other family members like they were slow. Kidded them about being dumb and voting Democrat, he often would pick on siblings and cousins as he got bigger. Knowing his mom would not let the family stand up to the baby, he adds, he thought he was smarter than everybody. Mm. Rory was one of the few who seemed to sense Hatley's dark side. When Cindy urged him to bond with her cousin over a shared love of books, Rory was put off by Hatley's preoccupation with true crime. Especially stories of serial killers such as the son of Sam. Even back then, he was drawn to darker stuff, Roy says. Huh. Well. Why is us? <clears throat> we ain't going to. Been watching true crime no since comment. I was 12. Like, <laughs> no comment. I've never wanted to kill anybody, though. Mm-mm. But also wasn't abused and all these other things. And it doesn't matter. It's just so. I know. At 13, Hatley began tagging along when his sister and her friends cruise the drag and when one of them handed him a beer he found his first true love booze oh he no writes. <sighs> he writes my mind that always worked too fast slowed down and i could focus for the first time in my life from the first buzz i knew that alcohol is what i craved what i needed what i had to have mm. his other fixation was pornography which in those days he found in magazines he hid them and a stash of vodka from his parents for years. Mm. He hid them and a stash of vodka from his parents for years. As a self-described fat antisocial kid, Hatley lamented that he never had a girlfriend. 
I have often wondered how my life might have turned out if I had learned about relationships at an early age, how to love, care, and share with a woman. During his senior year in 1984, Hatley joined the Air Force Reserve and was training at Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth to become a munitions specialist. After graduation, he endured reservist training. Reserves training. Reserves training in San Antonio before transferring to Colorado for technical school at Lowry Air Force Base outside Denver. At the dormitory, he met a young, serious, dark-haired woman from Ohio. Hatley had never kissed a girl. He calls it love at first sight. Mm. Late one night, they slow danced to Prince's Purple Rain. (laughs) On weekends, they made love in a cheap hotel. It was the happiest time of his life, Hatley writes. On impulse, they married. Neither their commanding officers nor his parents were thrilled. (laughs) Everybody mad. Uh Uh-huh. Once training ended, Hatley opted not to enlist in the Air Force, but his wife did. She was assigned to a base on the Pacific island of Guam, and after a few months of separation, he joined her there, walking off the flight into a land of a sure ocean. White beaches and deep green jungle. Mm. From that, From the moment they reunited, though, he knew that something <laughs> was awry. It seemed that the fire that had burned so hot in us had cooled just a bit. He writes, there was a story in her eyes I could not read. She had rented them a small apartment in an outlining village, and at first things went well enough. They were both heavy drinkers, which helped initially. When she went skydiving with her new friends, he would wait on the ground with a, with a machete slashing through the foliage when one of them inevitably landed in the jungle. He got a job at an insurance agency selling policies to service members. Hmm. I don't know about this jungle living. I don't think I could just, I like, whack the weeds down in, oh, the, I mean, like, in the brush. Like, because that's what he's doing. Like, I'm making but, clearings yeah. in the jungle. <laughs> I mean, if we had to, we would, but I, don't, I wouldn't want to. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. The magic of their courtship, however, was gone. As the weeks wore on, she became a, became distant, and they fought almost daily. For the first time in years, he began to pray. When things didn't improve, he decided to pledge his life to Satan. Oh, oh. <laughs> that went dark, <laughs> quick, real fast. <laughs> well, it said he not began if to he pray, was like Satan. <laughs> I said, well, if he's, but you know, he's not going to be doing it right because people. Like, people who worship Satan aren't like, we gotta kill everybody. Yeah, I know. You know? But he's gonna be, we're gonna kill everybody. Like, come on now. There was just one problem. In a tragicomic moment, he realized he didn't actually know how to contact the devil. I'd seen movies and it always seemed to start with candles, he writes. My wife had a house full of candles, so I gathered some up and tilt them. I got on my knees and asked Satan to help me out of my situation. I prayed that I would give him my soul for my freedom. If I could have only known what consequences my actions would bring to my life. See, this is what I'm saying. Like, he, <laughs> he's selling his soul to the devil. Uh-huh. Like, it's not really <laughs> like that. Lord. May God have mercy on my soul. Mm. It seems to have been a one-time thing, but the memory plagued him for years. In his manuscript, Hatley returns to the incident again and again, wondering if his impromptu plea to Satan explained the things he would later do. 
Mm. He drank more in a vain effort to forget his troubles. This soon took a toll at work. His sales commissions shrank, whether in need of money or to keep up appearances. He began using an office copy machine to crudely forge company checks. Oh, Lord. His wife, meanwhile, began going out alone. Hatley came to believe she was having an affair. Years later, he pinpointed this as the moment his life changed forever, giving him the fuel that I would use to destroy my life. I just did not have the maturity or experience to overcome this kind of thing. He called his mother, and she told him to come home. He stumbled off the plane, so drunk, I could barely walk. Stevensville was exactly the same as he left it, but he realized he wasn't. I was broken, he writes. Now 21, Hatley went back to work for his father and eventually rented a small apartment. Making a stab at reinvention, he asked people to call him by his first name, Joseph. But he couldn't put Guam out of his mind. It wasn't just the end of his marriage. When his embezzlement was discovered, his old boss threatened to bring criminal charges unless he repaid what he had stolen. Mm -mm. He indicates that he took out a bank loan to do so. And when he wasn't at work, he drank usually vodka, sometimes starting after breakfast. He knew he'd lost control but didn't care. When he suffered blackouts, he was relieved to depart reality. Mm. After he got a cold and took cough syrup, he liked it so much he began mixing it with the vodka. The syrup, he called it. It became his daily tonic. In time, he added a can of Pepsi, mixing it in a 44-ounce foam cup from Sonic, which he would sit during long drives in the brown pickup his parents bought him after graduation. Okay, so mm, the Route 44 cup. So people just been people been doing that for forever. forever. Yeah, because mm. yeah, they knew he was drinking, and when he disappeared, they would search for him. He cruised the roads from Stephenville for hours, brooding, cranking up Motley Crew. What? <laughs> I was like, oh. What social life he had revolved around his sister Regina and her friends, all in their 20s. Many nights he joined Roy and Cindy Hayes and four or five others to drink and play cards around Regina's circular kitchen table. What? They began calling themselves members of the round table. Oh, that's cute. He he took to sleeping with one of them, a married woman, um, a fleeting affair he dismisses as two lonely people trying to feel loved. Mm. So he hanging out with Cindy and Roy, which is Susan's friends. Yeah. At the kitchen table, Hatley talked openly about him, about his impending divorce. The others worried about him, but not much. I could tell the drinking was getting more and more, Cindy says. He was heavier, getting heavier every time we saw him. Then, on a fateful night in July 1987, a new face appeared at the round table, Cindy's best friend, Susan Woods. Okay. Though she was eight years older than him, Hatley had known Susan and Michael for years. The first marijuana he ever bought, he said he bought from Michael, a claim Michael denies. (laughs) He said, not me, brother. Don't be throwing me in in your manifesto. Uh Oh, my God. That night in his sister's kitchen, Hatley writes, he was drunk and thought Susan was flirting with him. He remembers flirting back and that a single evening, a single interaction, a single moment was all it took. Mm. 
The following Sunday night, after another drunken drive, he decided to swing by Susan's house unannounced. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Okay. You must understand that I did not set out that night to hurt anyone, Hatley writes. She welcomed him in. In his telling, they listened to records and had a few joints. In fact, they were cigarettes. At some point, he writes, I overstepped my bounds and Susan slapped me. What happened next, Hatley says, was a blur. Mm. By the time I came out of the fog, I had brutalized her, he writes. At first, she said she was going to tell what I had done to her. She then said she would not tell anyone if I just let her go. I found it interesting that she thought any of that mattered. I asked her if she believed in God. She said she did. I told her then, you need to pray. All these years later, I still do not know why I said that. I honestly do not know if I was mocking God or if I still had a little humanity left in me. I mean, obviously not, but anyway. All I know with certainty is the last moments of Susan's life were spent in prayer. That night, I took the life of a kind, sweet, loving woman who never did anything to me but show me kindness. My God, I had become a monster. Afterward, he drove home. The police station was on his way. He paused at the adjacent stop sign and considered pulling into the station. Instead, he drove on. Four days later, news of the murder appeared in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I wish with all my heart that I could tell you that I mourned for what I had done, That, but that would be a lie, he writes. Mm. Reading about it in the paper was a high like I had never had before. He went to the funeral, signed <gasps> the guest book, <gasps> noticed the loitering police officers, and felt nothing. Wow. wow. When his group gathered in his sister's kitchen for the first time, uh, for the first of a long series of boozy nights debating who might have killed Susan. Oh. Hatley was an enthusiastic participant. He was drinking heavily and making jokes, Roy says. He'd call the cops the Keystone Cops. If you wanted to find a cop, you need to go to the donut shop. Maybe the murderer would wander in there. It's a sentiment that permeates Hatley's manifesto. A basic investigation would have identified me in only a few days, he writes. Terming the police hicks and rubs. Mm. I could not believe that they never once interviewed me. A week before Susan was partying with us at the round table. My God, how could they have missed that? Instead, the detectives decided it had to be the ex-husband. They homed in on him and never let up. Yet another one of my victims. I mean, good Lord. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, so then you saw that this innocent man was going to go down for this and you still didn't care. But then, you know, but death will do that to you. Yeah. So now he's like remorseful, I guess. Or I don't know when he wrote it, but Mm. you know. Many evenings and every weekend, Hatley hung out at Regina's, drinking vodka and smoking in the backyard deep into the night. He soon noticed a 15-year-old girl who lived next door, Shannon Myers, a rebellious newcomer whose family had recently moved to Stephenville from Arkansas. Oh, Lord. Shannon spent much of her time partying at Terrellton State University fraternity houses. Hmm. Her mother had all but given up trying to rein her in. She came and went as she pleased. That summer of 1987, bored and with little to do, Shannon befriended Hatley's cousin, Melissa, who babysat Regina's two kids. Shannon began hanging out at the house. She vividly remembers her first meeting with Hatley, who was seven years older than she was. He walked in, and we kind of made eye contact, and he just started paying attention to me. How old was she again? 
18? Well, he was 21, and he was seven years older than her. <gasps> no. Yeah, so she was 15, and he was 22. <sighs> okay, Lord, this is awful. No one ever took the time to sit down and really talk to me, and I was like, this is nice. They struck up, they struck up a friendship, just good old porch conversation. I saw more of the sweeter, caring side of Scott than most did. Then one night on Regina's couch, he kissed her, and we just started having the relationship there. The next day, they had sex at Regina's house. Dang. My God. No. Boo. (laughs) They soon fell into a routine. Shannon would go out partying most nights, and then after parking her blue Mercury Cougar back home, she would smell the cigarette smoke and hear the clink of ice in a glass, signs that Hatley was in the backyard waiting for her. She would wander over there, and they would end up having sex, often in one of Regina's bathrooms. Looking back on it now, he was very controlling, she says. When I'd leave, he'd ask, hey, where are you going? And I would tell him, and it was, what time are you going to be home? Mm. Shannon was being sexually abused by someone closer to her family. She thinks that it made her easy prey for Hatley. I needed to be loved, she recalls, and Scott played on that. After sex, she says, he kept telling me that I'm special. I'm the special one. And that still today sends shivers through my spine. Oh, my God. So this poor child had already been abused by somebody else. And I feel like that happens a lot. People who are abused end up being abused again Mm -hmm. a lot. And it's horrible. Yeah, it's sad. After several weeks, Shannon says her mother discovered what was happening. She didn't like the age difference, she says. Distraught, Shannon's mother confronted Hatley in a Kmart parking lot. Kmart. Come on, Kmart. He promised to end the relationship, as did Shannon, but they didn't. When Hatley started renting an apartment, he and Shannon began meeting there. One night in September, Shannon took her white poodle, Dee Dee, to the apartment. Lately, she had sensed that Hatley was under some kind of stress. Today, she speculates that it had to do with Susan's murder, but what happened came out of nowhere. When they began to have sex, he seemed more forceful, more aggressive. And I kind of backed away and was like, hey, stop, you're hurting me. Mm-hmm. Shannon remembers. And, well, as soon as I said stop, all hell broke loose. In his eyes was a coldness. And I was like, okay, what the heck's happening? He took a knife out and held it to my throat. Oh, God. She didn't object, she says, out of concern that Hatley might hurt Dee Dee, who had begun to growl. Me, 15-year-old me, was worried about my dog, she says. And then I finally pushed him off me, and I grabbed my dog, and I ran out. She was fast walking home when Hatley pulled up alongside her in his pickup. He asked to give her a ride, and at first she refused, so he apologized. And I looked at him, and I didn't see that anger in his face anymore. She got in the vehicle in her driveway. He looked at me and put his hand on my face and said, I'm sorry, I love you, and I said, love you back. Ugh. When Shannon told her mother about the assault, she insisted on going to the police. While being interviewed at the station, Shannon sensed the officer's skepticism once she said she and Hatley had ongoing sexual relationship. She says her reputation as a wild child probably influenced her treatment. It was he said, she said, Shannon remembers. They just viewed it as I was the crazy one. 
But according to Hatley's journals, the police gave so little credence to Shannon's story that he didn't even have to contest the accusation. Gosh. When an officer paid him a visit, he thought he'd soon be linked to the murder. That did not happen. What what happened was, the officer told me that this was a screwed up little girl, so I should stay away from her. Wow. Uh, wow. They, yeah, said so I should stay away from her. He's like, incredible. Deeply frightened and confused by the police department's refusal to pers- to prosecute, Shannon cut off contact with Hatley, though the continued though she continued visiting his cousin Melissa next door in daylight hours when he was gone. Once when she hadn't realized that Hatley was in the house, she overheard him arguing with his sister. They were having a conversation about, well, you shouldn't have messed with her, she recalls. And he goes, yes, but I love her. And she goes, but she's 15. Mm. The police visit, meanwhile, the police visit, meanwhile, left Hatley deeply paranoid, convinced he would soon be arrested. He lived near the station and each day watched cruisers drive past his apartment. He dreamed of taking Shannon on a cross-country crime spree, a Labonte and Clyde, and writes that she was initially receptive. What? Probably because she thought you'd kill her if otherwise. I I doubt this little girl is like, oh yeah, I want to be like natural-born killers and go on a crime spree. She strongly denies this. According to Shannon, their only communication was a barrage of plaintive phone calls and letters. He basically stalked me. And so she ignored him. Yeah. Nine months passed and she tried dating boys her age, but after a difficult breakup, she finally agreed to see Hatley again. It was July 1988, a year after Susan's death. I was over at Regina's house and he was already there, she recalls. And he goes, hey, can I talk to you? I miss you. And I'm like, oh, I miss you too. Shannon was still uneasy. I didn't really trust him. I feared him a little bit. Sometime later, Hatley called her at home one evening. He kept saying, Shannon, I really want to see you tonight. I need to explain why I did what I did to you. And the 16-year-old me wanted answers. You know, if you love me so much, why did you hurt me? They met in a laundromat parking lot. The moment she climbed into his truck, I immediately knew I made a mistake, she says. We drove off, and he locked the door, and he goes, come over and sit beside me. Just the way he was talking to me was totally different. He had aggression in his voice, and I was doing exactly what he told me because I was afraid. As they drove, though, he kept telling her they were destined to be together, and she briefly warmed to him. I'm just wanting to be loved and accepted, she says. They pulled up to Roadside Park, south of town, where Hatley parked out of sight of the road. As soon as we got there, everything changed, Shannon goes on. He turned back to that night when he raped... He turned back to that night when he raped me with a knife. The look in his eyes and everything, I knew I was in trouble. Mm. He pressed her to have sex, and when she refused, he slapped her. They got out of the truck and sat on a picnic table. He immediately started taking off my clothes, and we ended up having intercourse, and it was brutal. He started hitting her so hard it knocked her unconscious. After she came to, she felt blood coming out of her ear. He raped her repeatedly, taking breaks to smoke a cigarette and have a drink. Ew. 
That's disgusting. This is awful. Thinking he would kill her and hide her body, Shannon began tossing her things, a hairpin, her bra, the barrette she was wearing, hoping the police might find them later. I fought for my life there, she says. I remember going in and out of consciousness and thinking, I'm not going to get out of here alive. There was a little bitty spring because it rained a few days before, so it was a little muddy. He took me by that water. Scott had a fascination with water and having sex in the bathroom. That's where he wanted to have sex every time at Regina's. He pushed her face into the little spring as he raped her again. Mm. Police later surmised that it was the same fantasy he had acted out with Susan. Because remember, oh, she was found yeah. face down in black water mm-hmm. in the bathtub. He went on like this for six hours. I knew I had to turn the tables on him in order to survive, she says. I knew I had to convince him that I loved him. Eventually, they got back into the cab of the truck and Shannon sat as far away from him as she could. And he goes, no, I want you over here by me. And that was probably one of the scariest minutes of my life. Do I breathe? Do I don't breathe? I was scared to make a sound and scared to show my face because if I show my face, he's going to see that he did damage to me. Mm -hmm. If he saw the blood and bruises and realized the severity of what he'd done, she feared he would know that this time the rape could not be kept swept under a rug. Right. So I looked down real fast and couldn't see the bruises. He couldn't see the swelling. And he was caressing the side of my face. And he goes, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm okay. And I said, I just want to start my life with you. And he goes, I'm sorry for what I did. And I said, it's okay. I love you. I just need to listen to you. And I remember saying that to him. And he goes, don't you turn me in. I said, I'm not going to say anything. And he believed me. He reached under the dashboard and turned on the ignition. He drove her to the laundromat parking lot and left her just before the sun rose. I've never ran so fast in my life, Shannon says. When she got home, she fell into her stepfather's arms and he yelled for her mom. They rushed her to the hospital. This time her account was taken seriously. Nurse administrated a rape kit. If awkwardly, it wasn't clear if any of them had done it before. Because the attack had occurred outside city limits, the investigation fell to the Arath County Sheriff's Office, whose deputies soon arrived at the hospital to interview her. Badly bruised and bloody, but still alive. Shannon Myers told them everything. Good. Ugh. The next morning, Hatley was awakened by a knock at his door. Glancing through the curtains, he saw that it was a deputy sheriff. He took a swig of vodka and fetched his pistol. He prepa- what? Yeah. He prepared to shoot the deputy as soon as he entered the apartment. Oh, oh, okay. So he's, yeah, he's ready to fight. Just ready to shoot yeah. an officer. Like, that's a big charge. Yeah. But the officer left when no one came to the doors. Hatley assumed that the authorities would soon return in force. He packed a bag, threw in his pistol, and drove to the bank, where he drained his account, then headed west, no clue where he was going, and that night, he drank beer in an El Paso motel, mm. staring out at Mexico. The next day, he went farther west, thinking he might see the ocean in California. But when he spied billboards for Las Vegas, he steered there instead. Of course he did. Yeah. He had no plan. Days, he drank and wandered. 
nights at a motel on Fremont Street, he mm-hmm. drank more and pondered suicide. More than once, he put the gun into his mouth. Running low on money, he walked into a strip mall shoe store, tried on a pair of shoes, then pointed his gun at the saleswoman. He trotted out with $120, the shoes, and a powerful adrenaline rush. Oh, my God. So now he's just robbing people. Yeah. So after that, he tried to rob a hotel clerk, but the man barely understood English and started shoveling him handful of coins. Mm. Hatley became enraged and was about to shoot him, but took off when someone approached the outside door. Dang, they saved that man. Oh, my gosh. The next day, while scouting new targets, he noticed a motorcycle policeman behind him. A moment later, three patrol cars appeared, and he drew his gun into his lap. A helicopter hovered into view. When the patrol cars hit their lights, he heard a voice on a loudspeaker telling him to pull over. He eased into a Denny's parking lot. For a moment, he considered starting a gunfight. Instead, he crawled out and lay on the pavement and was arrested. Mm. Thrown into a holding tank, Hatley waited for the Stephenville police to arrive and haul him back to Texas to answer for the rape and no doubt the murder. And they never came. In a Las Vegas courtroom, Hatley was convicted of two counts of armed robbery and faced a 30-year sentence for each. Instead, a judge noting his age sentenced Hatley to 120 days in a youth offender program. After he served that brief stint, his parents drove him home. By the time he arrived back in Stephenville, it was becoming clear that his escape west had been a misjudgment. It turned out there were no reason to have fled. A grand jury had already declined to indict him for the rape. What? Like, that's a grand jury? And he fled. So what does that tell you? Like. Yeah. So he's getting away with this again. Are you serious? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. His parents had fought it in his absence. So his mother went to the church and got all the members of the congregation to sign up about what a great boy he was, Roy recalls. Uh. He could have been a good boy, but he ain't a good man. Like. Right. Yeah, because he's like 21 or 22, yeah. we figured out. We had to figure it out off the off the air. But we, yeah, like. And according to Don Miller, the Hatleys hired a private investigator who did a hatchet job on Shannon. Yeah, Miller said, um, Miller said that at the time. Mm. Um, if you, if you could prove the victim was promiscuous, the charge would likely be dismissed. Hatley was clean cut, Miller says. He was a Stephenville kid. One of us, you know, Shannon, well, she did not enjoy that reputation. I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't get it. It's because they've known him. They're like, no, he can never do anything like that. We've known him since he was five years old. Like, okay. You've been around him and seen him in church and maybe some functions, but you didn't know him. Right. Yeah. You don't like, you know, never him. know anybody. Ugh. This is awful. Shannon thought Hatley would be jailed for years in Nevada. So she was stunned when she spotted him back in town. Oh God. She told police who hadn't known either. She assured herself that the sheriff's rape investigation would put him away. 
Then came the official letter in the mail. I was reading it, she says, and I'm like, what does this mean? Not indicting him? What does this mean? Lack of evidence? She went over to her neighbors who helped her make sense of it, and she's trying to find the words, and she goes, they should have indicted him. I was confused. I was hurt. I felt like I was raped all over again. Ugh. Several of those involved in the Stephenville law enforcement community now acknowledge the egregious injustice. There was multiple failings. It's easy to criticize the Stephenville police for focusing so much for their energies on investigating Michael Woods and for so casually ignoring Sharon's first rape allegation. Another serious criticism could be directed against the Arath County Sheriff's Office, which failed to pass on to police what Shannon told them of Hatley's admission to a previous murder. Right. So they're just like, this is just like Sherry Rasmussen. Yeah. Where somebody was telling the police and they didn't listen. They didn't listen. This is exactly like that. Hindsight. Heck yeah, we should have known about Hatley, Miller says. But in all of the statements and reports we did, none of Susan Woods' friends ever mentioned he was in her circle. He could just decide that he's just going to, like, he's probably seen her around town. Yeah. You know, and was just like, oh, I, I want to do that to her. Well, like, he met her at that party. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he and yeah. befriended his cousins, one of his cousins or something. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So the only red flag would have been if somebody in the sheriff's office would have listened to what Shannon was saying and really listened to her and correlated it over to Susan Woods. But to my knowledge, no one ever knew they had even met. I had no idea, and Donnie didn't either. As for Shannon, she never understood what ha- what happened inside the grand jury, whose deliberations were secret. But afterward, she noticed that Hatley seemed to turn up in places she was visiting at Regina's fraternity party and the skating rink. He was following me, she says. It was almost as if the grand jury decision had em- Boldened him. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure he felt like he was untouchable. Mm-hmm. After seeing him at the rink, she took a friend with her and drove home. Hatley's truck was already in the driveway next door. <gasps> Good Lord. Like, go on somewhere. Crazy. He's getting on my nerves. Mm-hmm. I called him out. Shannon says, I'm like, Scott, you need to come out now. He refused. I'm like, quit being a chicken shit and come out and face me like a man. I stood up to him that night. We had words out in the front yard and I told him to stop. I'm like, you know what you did to me? He quit harassing her after that. Mm. Even so, Shannon's life was beginning to crumble. Her mother and stepfather moved away and she stayed with an uncle. Barely a year after the rape, in in a bid for security of some sort, she suddenly got married to a local boy. It lasted 90 days. Mm. Afterwards, she leaned heavily on a friend for support, but then he was killed in a motorcycle accident. Oh, my gosh. My world crashed, Shannon says. At her lowest, she considered killing herself. Mm. Instead, she fled, moving to Pasadena, southwest of Houston, with her mother when she was 19. She would seek professional counseling for years after that. Come through. Things never came easy, but she told herself she was still alive, she was a survivor, and she had escaped Stephenville. Yes. So, back living with his parents, having gotten away with murder and rape, yeah, 
Hatley's knew for sure. Hatley knew for sure he couldn't stay in Stephenville. The specter of imminent arrest was ever present. He moved to Nashville. Ooh. Uh. In 1993, got married, and he and his wife had two children. Like his older brother, Hatley became a truck driver. By ugh. see, now this is making me think. Now, who else was he killing out here? Yeah. Because truck drivers, like, not all of them, obviously, but right. But I'm, I'm just thinking, like he's raped and murdered somebody already. What's going to stop him from doing it again? Yeah, especially like, when he's on the road in different states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what unsolved all these different girls he yeah. sees. Well, even in Nashville, like what unsolved uh-huh. rapes and murders in 1993 in Nashville are there? Could he be connected to them? Yeah, that makes you wonder. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. By his telling, he was a good one, valued by his company for the long hours he drove. <laughs> of course. What was he yeah. doing in them long hours? Yeah. He worked so hard, he says. His dispatcher once asked what he was running from. Myself, he said. Alone out on the road, Hatley writes, I honed my skill at picking up broken women, mostly in roadside bars. <sighs> If he violated the law doing so, there is no known record of it. He took pills to stay awake on the road and ended up rear-ending another truck in Dallas, which led to his dismissal. Good. He then took a job in Nashville in a Nashville grocery warehouse. It paid well, but his past remained a torment. He was never able to get the murder out of his mind. He Good. Yeah. He drank every night and, and all hours on, on weekends. His daughter was injured in a car accident and required extended bouts of physical therapy. His wife was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Mm. When a tornado damaged their apartment complex, they moved into a duplex, only to see it destroyed when a drunk driver plowed through it. So life is getting him. Mm-hmm. Tearing him up. He began to believe that it was all God's punishment for what he'd done. Years passed, five, then ten. His life calmed. And in the late 90s, Hatley's company proposed promoting him to help run a warehouse in Round Rock. Returning to Texas felt like a serious risk. Mm-hmm. Deep down, I knew it was a mistake, but in the end, my ego and greed won my emotional battle, he writes. Mm. They found a nice poolside apartment, but, it, but Hatley's drinking was destroying their marriage. He and his wife fought, sometimes violently. Of course. She's lucky he didn't kill her. Right. She later alleged that he beat her. His schedule didn't help. He worked nights and slept most days, which is what he was doing one morning in 2006, when after 19 long years, they finally came for him. It was June 6th. As they drove from Stephenville to Round Rock that day, Don Miller turned to his partner and said, Make no mistake, the day is 6-6 of 06, and we are about to meet the devil himself. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That's one of our friend's birthdays. Yep. Mm. Sure enough. I remember that day. Yep. A few months earlier, after reading the file on Shannon's rape, Miller had tracked down Hatley in Round Rock. He asked police there to bring him in for questioning. The man who appeared voluntarily in a police interrogation room the next day was a 40-year-old warehouse supervisor, nearly 300 pounds, with close-cropped dark hair and a matching mustache. When Miller told Hatley why they'd come, he seemed blasé, almost bored. He comes in and tries to act 
calm, cool, collected, nonchalant, which to me is a big red flag, Miller says. Yeah. Innocent people tend to heatedly deny false allegations. Right. That's not what he did. He just said, I didn't have anything to do with it. Maybe I might have had sex with her. I don't remember. I don't think so. Mm, you lying. Miller wasn't seeking confession and didn't need one. The physical evidence was enough for an arrest, and Hatley agreed to, to provide his DNA. When it matched, the material found out the material found at the scene, as Miller was confident it would, a conviction would likely follow. So he didn't push. When he asked why Hatley's fingerprints had been found at Susan's, the man shrugged, insisting that members of the round table spent many evenings there. At one point, a Round Rock officer took Miller aside and told him to keep talking. Hatley's wife was considering charges of her own. Mm-mm. The next day, Round Rock police re-interviewed him. Just as Miller had anticipated, Hatley now claimed he'd had a kinky affair with Susan. Mm-hmm. An assertion that Miller knew was a lie. Meanwhile, Hatley's wife went ahead with the charges, and that night when Hatley took his family to dinner at IHOP, Round Rock police descended on the restaurant and arrested him on domestic abuse charges. <laughs> Good. A few days later, Miller filed the arrest warrant for the murder. When the results came back on the DNA, Hatley's genetic material matched that on the cigarette butts. Mm-hmm. The news landed a the news landed like a meteorite in Stephenville. Before the arrest was announced, Miller found Susan's father at the golf course. Miller told him that they had the man who murdered his daughter. Joe Atkins refused to believe that it could have been anyone but Michael Woods. Still on that. Yeah, like, no. It was the same everywhere. Nobody believed me, Miller remembers. Roy and Cindy Hayes were among the doubters. Almost 20 years after Susan's death, Roy was still irked at his retreatment. Roy was still irked IRKED. Mm-hmm. Irked. Okay. okay. Roy was still irked at his at his treatment by police. Rumors of his involvement had cost him the career in law enforcement he planned and at least one other job, he says. He thought Cindy's cousin Scott was now being wronged in the same way. Mm-mm. Not only Miller personally not until Miller personally explained the evidence did Roy and Cindy come around. This caused a rift with the Hatley family. Well, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Roy remembers Hatley's mother telling them, we need to circle the wagons. It is our family against the cops. According to Cindy, it tore our family completely apart. I mean. DNA don't lie. Yeah. The math is mathing. Literally. I mean. So. The only, the only thing would be is if. The cops were setting this certain individual up and lied about getting his DNA, but I don't think right, yeah, because that's but he did it, yeah. But he did this, and he know he did this, yeah. He knows, and he knows. So that's why he ran. Yeah, he fled. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, oh no, he couldn't have. But he left for Texas and or left Texas and ran away. But that had nothing to do with anything. No, and, of course not. You know, his DNA is all over the crime scene. But they were there a lot. But were you there that night? You're telling me she just had a million cigarette butts that she just didn't take away from the last time y'all were there? Like, okay. Yep. 
So, Michael was in a college class when Miller phoned. Although he'd already been cleared, he had never felt truly safe with the case still unsolved, which I get it. I mm-hmm. would be too. Yeah. He took the call outside. I hadn't had a cigarette in a year, he says. My professor who came out with me gave me one. I needed it. I cried a little bit. It was surreal. They finally got him. I was beginning to think they never would. It took forever for Miller to track down Shannon Myers. She had been so traumatized by the two rapes that she had basically gone into hiding. She says, For years she was stricken with panic attacks and migraines. News of Hatley's arrest offered her the validation Stephenville had never given her. Today, after years of therapy, Shannon is happily married and working in the Houston area. When Miller called me, oh lordy, I was mad. I was relieved. Now you're finally listening, Shannon says. He kept telling me, I believe you, I believe you, and that's what I needed to hear. She's grateful the full story is finally being told, she says, because I truly believe there are other victims out there. He was a trucker, remember? I can't be the only one. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Somebody look into this. Put it. Put his stuff through the system. Come on now. Yep. There was no showy trial. No dramatic perp. No dramatic perp walk. No teary confessions. Confronted by the physical evidence, Hatley quietly cut a deal to serve 30 years. It mm. wasn't. It wasn't what some had hoped for, but Susan's parents wanted to avoid the attention of a trial and Hatley agreed to testify against one of his new cellmates in the Stephenville jail. Uh. He was sent to Huntsville, where in time he claimed to have rediscovered religion, wrote his manifesto, and in 2017 was diagnosed with bladder cancer that soon went into remission. Released the following year on good behavior, having served just 11 years, (gasps) he entered a halfway house in Midland, found a job repairing oil field trucks, and after being laid off at the outset of the coronavirus pandemic, mm-hmm. moved into an RV park outside of Abilene to be near one of his daughters, Amanda. He was sober, and things went well for a time. It didn't last. I don't know what happened, but I'm pretty sure he started drinking again, Amanda says. This is his daughter. Mm-hmm. He distanced his... <laughs> he didn't... Distance. Yes. (laughs) I can go the distance. (laughs) He distanced himself from us. He didn't come around for months at a time. Then he'd just pop up at the door. I told him he needed to call and we'd have a big fight. Like, instead of stopping by a call. Yeah, like you need to call. Yeah. On Halloween 2021, Hatley told her his cancer had returned and spread to his spine. Six weeks later, his landlord found him dead on the floor of his trailer. He was 56. Mm. Hatley had never admitted to Amanda what he had done in Stephenville. She learned the details only after she read his manuscript. All those things he did, the rape and the violence, he did those same things to my mom, Amanda says. Yeah. So it didn't surprise me. Shannon, she pauses to regain her composure. I don't know what to tell you. My dad was just a really bad guy. Wow. I mean, and that is, do you know who killed Susan Woods? That's crazy. Yep. I mean, even after all this time, he still only served 11 years for two rapes because, I mean, 
that we know of mm-hmm. because his yeah. wife and um Shannon and then the murder of Susan Woods and he only spent that 11 years in jail. That yeah. being the only murder? Yeah. Cuz there ain't no telling. Oh no, he he had to have those long hours out on the road. He worked so hard, worked so hard abusing people. And even being out after he served 11 years, he could he still could have done something. Yeah, he started drinking again. Who knows what happened? Oh, run his like he. I know he's in Avis. He has to be. Yeah. Mm-mm. Is it Avis? No, Codis. Avis is. Avis has to do with driving. I had to renew my registration because my birthday was this month, which it won't be aired this month. But you know, yeah. But that was a good story. It was a good story. I liked it. Yeah, I'm glad they finally got him in the end, but they, he's awful. He's terrible. Was terrible. Yeah, he did now. Yeah. That was good, though. I like that one. Mm-hmm. Well, hope y'all enjoyed it. I hope, you, I hope you've been liking the murders. Because <laughs> I ain't, it's been a minute, you know. Yeah, well, and it's been a minute. Well, actually, no, it hasn't. Not to them. I was like, since I've done one, but I was like, I just did one last time. So I was like, never mind. But anyway. Well, if you have questions, comments, concerns, you can always email us at a million murders at gmail.com. And you can also send in stories. Yes, if you please, have stories, send please. them in. If you don't have email, if you don't have. If you don't have an email, you can message us on Facebook. Or if you don't have Facebook, but email email us. Email us. Yeah, send it to us however you can. Because we've only done one episode of listeners' stories. Yes. Yeah, we need more. I've told people at work, too. I'm like, y'all need to be telling me. I have a couple people I told at work, too. Yeah. Because they said they had some. Yeah, because you said that one coworker has a lot of. Ethan and Bree. Ethan and Bree. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Ethan and Bree. I'm going to need y'all to go ahead and send those on in Mm -hmm. however you want to. Okay. And then we will cover them. Chelsea will cover the next listener story. So, yes. And you can check out our Instagram. I just realized I forgot we (laughs) got. So, yeah, do that. You can also check out our Instagram at A Million Murders and our Facebook page and group. A Million million Murders. I don't know why I said that like that. A Million Murders. And I think that's it. Thank you guys for tuning in. And we hope you come back for a million million more. more. Bye. Bye.